I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. This is the 20th episode of Myth Madness, and we are coming closer to the end of my first episode series on Greek mythology. In this series, I started with the episodes dealing with the Greek creation stories, how the universe was created, where the gods came from, and where humans came from. Then I began episodes dealing with each Olympian god. Throughout all of that, you often heard about the most important god in Greek mythology, the king of the universe, Zeus. But unlike with the other gods and goddesses, I haven't yet done a specific episode on Zeus. Today is that episode. A bit of it will be recap of things that came up in other episodes, but I wanted to make a single episode that goes through all things Zeus. So let's start at the beginning. As you've heard, the parents of Zeus were the titans Kronos and Rhea. Zeus was technically the youngest of their children, but Kronos was told by his father Aranos that he would be overthrown by one of his own children. So Kronos tried a new method of birth control, swallowing each of his children whole as soon as they were born. But by the time she is pregnant with her youngest son Zeus, his mother Rhea was fed up. She devised a plan to give birth to Zeus in Crete and have him raised in secret. In place of Zeus, a stone was dressed up and swaddled like a baby and taken to Kronos. Kronos swallowed it and had no idea that it was just a stone and that his real son was safe and sound and hidden away. The Greek Apollodorus gives additional details. He says that Zeus was brought to a cave on Mount Dicte in Crete and put in the care of nymphs and a goat, who is sometimes said to be also a nymph. In some versions, Zeus is fed honey from bees. The infant Zeus is also protected by a group of armed spirits called the Curates. The Curates dance around the baby, and they clang their spears and shields together to drown out the noise of his crying. Zeus quickly grows up, increasing his strength and preparing to challenge his father. Once Zeus was ready to fight his father, either Gaia or a younger titan named Matus tricks Kronos into taking a solution that will cause him to vomit. Kronos throws up the stone that was made to look like the infant Zeus, and then vomits up Zeus's siblings in reverse order. This now makes Zeus the oldest. Zeus and his brothers and sisters established their homes and base of operations on Mount Olympus. In the real world, the mountain is located in Thessaly, a region in northern Greece. Next, on the advice of Gaia, Zeus goes to Tartarus, the darkest part of the underworld which serves as a dungeon for immortals. He releases six of his uncles, all giants, the three Cyclopses, and the three Hecatonchires, or the Hundred Handers. Kronos had previously imprisoned all of these in Tartarus. Now, they join Zeus in his revolution. The Cyclopses, skilled in the art of crafting, create for Zeus powerful weapons, his thunderbolts. Forever afterwards, the thunderbolt will be the symbol of Zeus's power, and it appears so in Greek art. In Greek art, Zeus's lightning is never drawn as a zigzaggy bolt like we draw it today. Lightning is always drawn as a very different shape. It almost looks like a bundle of arrows or a weird double-sided fork. Now, even with this new weapon, the war between the Titans and Olympians lasts for ten long years. The fighting is continuous and bitter. Zeus unleashes his full power, hurling thunderbolts, and with the help of the other gods and the Hecatonchires, Kronos and the Titans are eventually defeated, imprisoned in Tartarus, and Zeus becomes the new king of the universe. Once king, his throne was guarded by winged spirits, the male, Kratos, strength, and Zelos, rivalry, and the female, Nike, victory, and Bia, meaning force. After becoming king, Zeus then began establishing a more recognizable universe and strengthening his position. This is done by Zeus in a few different ways. 
but one way is through his sexual partnerships. Zeus's first partner is Matus, the young titan that in some versions helps him defeat Kronos. Matus' name means cunning intelligence, or cleverness. This is an important detail that I'll come back to. Matus becomes pregnant with a daughter, Athena, a goddess who will be equal to Zeus in strength and intelligence. At that point, Gaia returns, and she tells Zeus that Matus will next conceive a son who will be more powerful than Zeus and become a new king of gods and mortals. To prevent that, Zeus swallows Matus while she is pregnant with Athena. Athena will continue to grow inside Zeus, and eventually be born when Zeus complains of headaches and has his skull split open to release her. Her mother Matus, who will remain inside Zeus forever, acts as his counselor and whispers all of her wisdom to him. Zeus's next partner is Themis, another titan. Themis is the titan of the natural order of things, divine law, tradition, and sometimes justice. Their daughters are the Hore, a group of goddesses who are responsible for the seasons. Themis acts as Zeus's counselor and was also seated next to his throne as she sits leaning towards him. In addition to Themis, Zeus also struck up a relationship with Nemesine, another titan, the goddess of memory. She and Zeus slept together for nine nights, and their daughters are the nine muses, the goddesses of the arts. In some versions, Zeus is also with a mysterious titan named Dione, and their child is Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And finally, Zeus is married to Hera, his sister, an Olympian, and the goddess of marriage. Zeus and Hera have children, and they are Ares, the god of war, Eulithia, the goddess of childbirth, Hebe, the goddess of youth, and sometimes also Enyo, a goddess of war, who may be the same as Eris, goddess of discord. In one source, another one of Hera and Zeus's children is a poorly known underworld goddess named Angelos. Through all these relationships, we have cunning and intelligence, law and justice, memory, the arts, marriage, war, childbirth, and youth, which are all associated with Zeus in some way. And then, Zeus gets his own trusty lieutenant in the form of Athena to top it off. Zeus and Hera are some of the few Greek deities that actually are considered to be married, but that doesn't seem to have mattered to Zeus. He had a number of extramarital affairs with other immortals and even humans. In so doing, he became the father of some of the other major Greek gods and goddesses. With another titan named Leto, Zeus became the father of Artemis, the virgin goddess of hunting, and Apollo, the god of music, archery, and foreseeing the future. Zeus's wife Hera tried to prevent the births of these two, but was unsuccessful. Zeus was the father of Hermes, the Greek god of trickery, trade, and many other things. His mother was the younger titan Maia, and she gave birth to him in secret in a cave. On Olympus, Hermes acted as Zeus's agent or diplomat. He's often described as Zeus's messenger, but he had a more active role in carrying out Zeus's will. Instead, the real messenger was Iris, the goddess of the rainbow. She was the one who carried Zeus's messages and commands. Iris wasn't simply a relayer, though. In the Iliad, when she carried messages between Zeus and Poseidon, she questioned Poseidon's word choice, knowing the message he originally wanted her to take to Zeus was too strong to say to the king of the gods. With another one of his sisters, this time the goddess Demeter, Zeus was the father of the goddess Persephone. What is interesting is there are no stories of any animosity from Hera against either Demeter or Persephone. Sometimes the relationship with Demeter is listed by the Greeks as happening before Zeus's marriage to Hera. In that case, Persephone is not a product of an affair that Zeus had with Demeter. 
Zeus was directly responsible for marrying Persephone against the wishes of her mother Demeter to their brother Hades, the ruler of the underworld. Zeus allowed Hades to kidnap Persephone when she was picking flowers and take her to the underworld. Persephone eventually became queen of the dead, but was allowed to be with her mother on Mount Olympus for a portion of the year. And finally, there is Zeus's last immortal son, the Olympian Dionysus. Unlike the other gods and goddesses I've listed, his mother, named Semele, is not immortal. Instead, she was a human princess from the city of Thebes. Semele made a mistake, though. She asked to see Zeus's true divine form. In the traditional story, she was tricked into doing so by a disguised Hera. When Zeus appeared to her, with his lightning and thunder and riding a chariot, Semele was zapped and killed. Zeus ended up carrying their son Dionysus to term, taking the fetus from Semele's dead body, stitching it into his thigh, and then later giving birth to his son himself. Usually, in modern retellings of these myths, Zeus's infidelity, his cheating on Hera, is focused upon. That's basically the first thing everyone learns about Zeus, but especially when it comes to his immortal children. The important bit is that Zeus is the All-Father. He is considered the father of gods and men. They all refer to him as Father Zeus, and usually him speak to Zeus in the same way. It makes sense that Zeus is actually their fathers too. This is wrapped up in Zeus's other major role, being the big chief, the lord of all, the king of the universe. In ancient Greece, like with many ancient civilizations, kings were almost always men, and ideally, they had to be fathers, in order to have sons to take over and be king next. The fathers of families were also the heads of those families. All of this is reflected in Zeus. In the myths, being the All-Father comes from being king of the universe, and his power as king of the universe comes from being the parent of various gods and goddesses. From the interplay between those two things comes Zeus's relationships with all the different goddesses which stand for different components of kingship and fatherhood. That being said though, all the cheating makes for good stories. Part of the reason these myths were told over generations was because they were entertaining, and because they got stuck in people's heads. So just like gossip and reality TV today, Zeus's fathering of gods and humans is often juicy, and feature him being a cheater, a rapist, a kidnapper, and just downright terrible. But remember, Zeus was foremost a king, and through much of human history, kings have been given a license to be terrible. And we see this a lot in the stories of Zeus's mortal children. One victim of Zeus was Alcamene, a princess of Thebes in central Greece. She was especially devoted to her husband Amphitryon, and Hesiod says she was the tallest, most beautiful person with human parents. While her husband was away, Zeus arrived in the form of Amphitryon, taking on his shape. Thinking he was her husband, Alcamene was tricked into sleeping with the king of the gods. Zeus even used magic to make the single night last as long as three. Later, Alcamene gave birth to Heracles, one of the most famous heroes of Greek mythology. An early myth, referenced by both Homer's Iliad and the Catalogue of Women, a poem from the 600s to 700s BC, tells the story of Europa. Europa was said to be a Phoenician princess, a place in what is now Lebanon. Zeus transformed into a white bull to get close to her. When she hopped on his back, he carried her away to Crete and seduced or either raped her. According to Apollodorus, Europa's three sons from her relationship with Zeus were Minos, Radamanthes, and Sarpedon, 
although in the earlier Iliad, Sarpedon was not one of Europa's sons. Like with Europa, Zeus often took on animal disguises to get close to women. In another myth, we have Leda, a princess married to Tyndareus, king of Sparta. There are several versions of her seduction by Zeus. The king of the gods visited Leda in the form of a magnificent white swan. Art on Greek vases from the 300s BC show Leda embracing the swan and kissing it. And she must have also slept with this Zeus swan, as later writers say she even laid an egg afterwards. But Leda also slept with her husband Tyndarios on the same night, and became pregnant with his children too. Afterwards, Leda gave birth to Helen, the famous woman who was kidnapped and taken to Troy, the hero twins, Castor and Polydux, and sometimes also a woman named Clytemnestra. Because Zeus and Tyndarius both slept with Leda on the same night, there is uncertainty about who is whose child. The different versions can't be sure either. The Iliad and the Odyssey from the 700s BC seem to suggest that Castor and Polydux's father is Tyndarius, yet they are favored by Zeus. But two Homeric hymns also describe them as the sons of Zeus. The poet Pindar in the 400s BC claimed that Polydux is the son of Zeus and Castor was his mortal brother. Much later, Apollodorus agrees with this, adding that Helen was the daughter of Zeus and Clytemnestra was the daughter of Tyndarius. It's all very confusing. It's an ancient example of a complicated, blended family. For what it's worth, though, a lot of Greek heroes had two fathers like this. The Greek gods were basically deadbeat dads, and the hero was often named as the son of the human man. One of the strangest ways Zeus approached a woman was with Danae, the princess of Argos. Now, Danae found herself locked in a tall tower, and it wasn't because she turned into an ogre at night. Her father locked her in the tower, after an oracle told him that her son would kill his grandfather. Her father didn't want to be killed, and he probably thought no men would be able to get her pregnant if they couldn't get to her. But he forgot about Zeus. Pindar tells how Zeus appeared to Danae as a golden shower, a flowing stream of gold dripping down from the top of the tower to land on top of her. It's a strange scene, and it was very popular on Greek vases from the 400s BC, and they often show Danae pulling her robe aside or using it to catch the golden drops. After coming in contact with this Zeus rain, Danae becomes pregnant. I bring this up because the gold shower myth is an example of a virgin conception. Obviously, this is then reminiscent of stories of Jesus Christ. But strange circumstances of birth and virgin conceptions are actually very common in mythology. With Greek myths, we've already had the example of Aphrodite being born from Aranos' severed genitals touching the sea. But in Chinese mythology, there is a man born from a dead body, and in Japanese myth, there is a baby found inside of peach, and in the Aztec myths, there is a goddess who becomes pregnant after touching a falling ball of feathers. In addition to being king of the universe and the All-Father, Zeus is also viewed, at least partially, as a creator of humans. As I talked about back in the Creation of Humans episode, the Greeks had a lot of myths to explain where humans came from, and Zeus played a role in a few of them. In the more well-known story, it is the titan Prometheus who creates humans. Probably the best source for this story is the play Prometheus Bound, written by Aeschylus around 470 to 430 BC. In the play, Zeus is not very fond of humans. He is shown as cruel, taking fire away from them, and seems to almost want to destroy humans. You can compare this Zeus to the Zeus presented by Hesiod in his poem Works and Days from a few hundred years earlier. 
Again, we have the story of Prometheus, and with Zeus being the bad guy. But we also have Hesiod's myth of the different ages, which I talked about way back in episode 1. In that story, there are several races of humans. Zeus specifically, but sometimes the gods more generally, created them. Zeus also destroys more than one race of humans when they no longer honor the gods, and we are told that he will destroy this one too. Another Greek myth actually gives us a method that Zeus uses to murder all humans. In Apollodorus's library, Zeus ended the Bronze Age by pouring heavy rain from the sky, and flooded the greater part of Greece. It really shouldn't come as too much of a surprise. Zeus is the storm god of Greek myth after all. And what comes with a big storm? Lots and lots of rain. In this story too, Prometheus also helps humanity. He tells a man and a woman, Deucalion and Pyrrha, to build a chest, and to get into it. The floodwaters wash the chest away, and after nine days and nine nights, the chest came to rest on Mount Parnassus. They got out and made a sacrifice to Zeus, who then allowed them to live and repopulate the land by throwing rocks over their shoulders that turned into the next humans. But Zeus also could like humans, and in the Iliad, he tells his wife Hera that Troy is his favorite city. Zeus's main cult center was at Olympia in southwest Greece. Funny enough, it's in a very different part of Greece than Mount Olympus. At Olympia, the original Olympic Games were held every four years to honor Zeus. And the Temple of Zeus was built here dating back to the 900s or 1000s BC. This is deep in the Greek Dark Ages, between Mycenaean Greece and Archaic Greece. Around 470 to 455 BC, a great 43 meter tall statue of Zeus, made out of gold and ivory, was put in the temple. The statue was there for almost 800 years, and it was considered one of the ancient wonders of the world. Unfortunately, the statue was lost and destroyed sometime in the 400s AD. There were regional differences in the worship of Zeus across different parts of Greece. On Crete, he was often called Zeus Velkanos and shown in the form of a youth or a boy. This was in parallel to the Greek myths, where the main tradition was that Zeus was born in Crete. Like Apollo, Zeus could also be a god associated with predicting the future, and at Dodona, in the northwest Greece, Zeus even had his own oracle. The Odyssey says that Zeus's priests there listened to the rustlings of leaves in the surrounding oak trees to make their prophecies. And worship of Zeus here was also linked to Dione, our mysterious mother of Aphrodite, with Zeus. And then there is the much weirder Zeus Lycios of the wild Arcadia region of Greece. The philosopher Plato says that every nine years, people would gather on Mount Lycaon and mix in human flesh with sacrificed animals, and whoever ate the human flesh would turn into a wolf until another nine years had passed. People and archaeologists aren't sure if human sacrifice to Zeus actually took place here. There are skeletal remains that indicate sacrifice was at some time performed. This would have been around 1100 BC, so near the end of the time of Mycenaean Greece. But there is archaeological evidence that this site was already considered sacred before it was linked to Zeus Lycaos. Pottery pieces have been found that go back to approximately 3000 BC. That's way before Mycenaean Greece, and way before Classical Greece. If a god was worshipped on this mountain then, it wasn't Zeus. Back in the Ares episode, I shared a little bit about the Romans' god Mars, widely considered their version of Ares. Today, I want to talk about another Roman god, Jupiter, the Romans' version of Zeus. 
In the Aries episode, I pointed out how the Roman Mars was influenced by the Greek Aries, but that there were some important key differences. For Jupiter, though, it seems the Romans adopted the classic mythology of Zeus almost wholesale, and that this is almost complete enough to hide any truly Italian traits. Unlike with the regional cults of Zeus in Greece, the Roman Jupiter was always shown in the form of the Zeus we think of today, the lightning-wielding king of the gods. And while at first glance their names do not appear similar, in fact, they very much are. First though, let's look at Jupiter. Usually it's spelt with a J, right? But the thing is, a J in Latin actually has a Y sound, a Y. So Jupiter is more accurately pronounced as Jupiter, and in Old Latin, the name is actually written as U Potter, or even Diu Potter. In Latin, Potter means father, so U Potter has father right in the name. Potter is also father in ancient Greek, and in ancient Greece, Zeus was often called Father Zeus. So it would have been very common to hear people say Zeus Potter. If you listen, Zeus Potter and U Potter, they're already starting to sound the same. So why is this? Well, it's widely believed by linguists, and I'm not a linguist, so bear with me here, that the names Jupiter and Zeus, or Zeus Potter and Eupater, evolved together from earlier words spoken by people before the Greeks and Romans developed their specific, distinct languages. Languages evolve over time along with the groups of people that spoke them, and as accents change and new words are added or no longer used anymore, Vowels can shift, letters can be dropped, and words can subtly change into something different. This process was continuous, and it can even be seen when you look at the names for Zeus used in Mycenaean records. In Mycenaean Greek, the name Zeus is written as Dewas. How do we go from Mycenaean Dewas to Zeus? Well, if the W is dropped, you get Deus, which again, you can see how the consonants can shift, and you get Zeus. If you keep going backward, linguists believe that these words were ultimately derived from words meaning the daylight sky, as in not the night sky, and father. And that doesn't seem all that different from how we think of Zeus today, as the sky father. Now that we understand what Zeus's name means, let's talk about some of his epithets, the additional names and nicknames that are sometimes tacked on. Like with most of the Greek gods, Zeus had plenty of them. And lots were used in different regions of Greece, and some were even shared with other gods too. First, there is Aegeotus, meaning holder of the Aegis. Zeus's daughter Athena has the same title. As I went over in the Athena episode, the Aegis is a special piece of clothing, and Zeus uses the Aegis to terrify his enemies. Agoraeus was used to show Zeus as the overseer of the Agora, or the town marketplace, or town center. Athena, Artemis, and Hermes were also linked to Agoras. As justice and hospitality were very important to Zeus, the title is a good fit for him as well. In addition to these, Zeus had a whole number of other epithets, some like keeper of oaths, freedom giver, and avenger of evil deeds. The epithets were always very respectful to Zeus and often emphasized his strength and even his justness. And of course, they would. They were used by worshippers praying to Zeus to be helpful in some way. Zeus was very powerful, and he wasn't going to help Greeks who insulted him. Zeus in the myths was always very fickle, and the Greeks were careful in their real lives, and the other gods and heroes were very careful in the myths, to make sure that Zeus was properly honored, respected, and sacrificed too. It was very bad to get on Zeus's bad side, 
And in the Iliad, he even gives a great speech to the other immortals, warning them against that. This comes when Zeus declares that the others should stay out of the Trojan War. He says this, Let none of you, neither goddess nor god, try to cross me, but obey me every one that I may bring this matter to an end. If I see anyone acting a part and helping either Trojan or Greek, he shall be beaten when he comes back to Olympus, or I will hurl him down into dark Tartarus far into the deepest pit under the earth, where the gates are iron and the floor bronze, as far beneath Hades as heaven is high above the earth, and you may learn how much the mightiest I am among you. Try me and find out for yourselves. Hang me a golden chain from heaven and lay hold of it all of you, gods and goddesses together. Tug as you will, you will not drag the supreme counselor from heaven to earth. But were I to pull at it myself, I should draw you up with earth and sea into the bargain. Then would I bind the chain about some pinnacle of Olympus and leave you all dangling in the mid-air. So far am I above all others, either gods or men. There you have it then. Zeus points out that he is king and the other gods don't even come close to him. With all that power though, it seems like Zeus would be very secure in his reign over creation. You'd think he should be able to find a nice comfy spot at the top of Mount Olympus, give his commands to Hermes and Iris to send out, let Athena and Apollo do the hard work, and then sit back with some of Dionysus' wine and relax, right? So why then all the zapping with lightning and throwing things down to Tartarus and challenging the gods to a large tug-of-war contest? Well, the problem was Zeus couldn't relax because all the immortals were a pretty fickle bunch, and some of them were just waiting around the corner to cause trouble. And then there were also a number of other hostile divine beings too. In the beginning, Zeus was able to defeat Kronos and the Titans, but next week, I'll talk about some of the toughest opponents to Zeus's rule over the universe, the Giants. So stay tuned. And that's all for today. If you're enjoying this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you can help get the word out and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. As always, thank you for listening.